Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone, welcome back to Walking with Freya. I hope you are all having a beautiful May and a wonderful PWS Awareness Month. Things are going pretty good here. I've done some local awareness education, which has felt pretty good. One of the things that I've done besides the podcast was make a post in Freya's Facebook group in the class. The class that she is in has her own Facebook group. And I was a little I was honestly, I was a little nervous and I felt vulnerable doing that. I can't really put into words yet why that made me feel vulnerable, especially because, uh, you know, quite a few, a few of those families know so much about her. They already, they already know, but the ones that don't, uh, maybe I was feeling a little vulnerable. I just, I don't want Freya to be labeled by her diagnosis and I also, I I feel like it's intimidating to educate her peers so much when I haven't actually face-to-face educated her about it. I mean, we had one talk recently about um, DNA and having different DNA and, you know, the kind of this incomprehensible conversation, really, uh, by the river. But um, I'm not sure how much she gets or understands, and I don't necessarily want to See, the phrase that comes to mind is arm her peers with that information. And that, I think, right there is telling of how I feel about it. When, you know, if I talk it out, I, I, I think that kids are very sweet and kind and we should expect that of them. But, yeah, it's intimidating. I'm sure that you all have a variety of opinions on this. And I, of course, would love to hear them. There is our own Facebook group, Walking with Freya. And you need an invite, but I'll give you one if you get in touch. Or you can email me at walkingwithfreya at gmail.com. I would love to just know what you think. What are your, how do you talk to your kids? And how do you talk to their friends? How much do your kids know about uh, their challenges and their diagnosis? How much do they understand? How, how much of a label is it? How do they feel about it? I don't know. There's Yeah, that's a whole other episode, so I'm sorry. I'm rambling now. Anyway, so I made a post and on this Facebook group for the class, and in the post, I I gave a few details about PWS, and I referenced some of our favorite websites um, that I reference all the time on the podcast, and I shared with them the podcast episode number four. That's from way back when, over a year ago, towards the beginning And that is the one where I tell the story. It's called Diagnosis. And it's the one where I tell the story of receiving Freya's diagnosis. And at the end, I give uh, like a general, I guess some general information about PWS. So I thought that 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 would be a good one to share. And 
you know, sweet comments on that post, just, you know, messages of we love Freya. And one of the moms this morning even said, oh, I listened to that podcast last night. And and she said the same thing. She said, we love Freya. And she it was her I think it was her first podcast that she's ever listened to. She had never heard of she had never heard of PWS. So there's a lot of uh, it's just it's been really beautiful and heartwarming to to see how people are willing to to take in this information and willing to learn a little more and just willing to be supportive and loving. So I'm really I'm stoked on that. So thank you to those parents. I mean, I think it's such a great way for people to learn more about this disorder and hopefully some other disorders. You know, if you've come on the podcast or if you're if your diagnosis has been represented in the podcast, uh, you know, maybe it's a good a good reference, a good resource for people to learn a little more, a little more of the intimate side of of this life. Another thing that I did was I mentioned to Freya's teacher that maybe I could uh, find a book or something that talked about children with differing abilities in the classroom. And, uh, you know, it's just funny because I was like, oh, I, I can find a book. And I went to class the other day and there was a giant tub that she had gotten from the Office of Education. And it was a whole tub full of books on the subject, on you know, uh, kids in wheelchairs and kids with autism and, you know, these three sisters and one's, one's really fast, one's kind of fast and the other one's slow. And, you know, just these really sweet books. And, and when I left the classroom, all the kids, you know, a lot of the kids that were there were around the table and they all, all had pulled out a book or two. This is first grade, so some of them can read and some are reading to others. It was just so, so sweet to see that. And I'm just so grateful. I got a little choked up, uh, but, you know, it's how I do. So I another thing is uh, Freya's teacher is taking information to a staff meeting, and I wrote up some notes. Actually, I got, like, a brief summary of PWS off of pwcf.org. They have a great little summary that just, you know, lays it out in a paragraph and because I, of course, could ramble on and on about it. but And then I wrote a little bit after that about how it manifests with Freya. And so she's going to share that with all of the staff. And it's just exciting. And I think every little bit of education helps. It helps to, to broaden our perspective. It helps us to understand people a little more. It helps to make the, pl- the place, the places we are, safer. So I'm really, I'm really uh, excited for that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm such a huge supporter of PWS Awareness Month. So what are you doing for it? How are you spreading the education? If you aren't, if it feels too heavy or too new, no worries. We all do what we can. And sometimes that means we stay inward, trying to keep our own sanity. And I definitely have those days too. So... (laughs) (laughs) There is no shame in that. But if you are out there, if you are educating your community, educating your family and your friends, I'd love to hear your ideas or your actions, what it is that you're doing. Uh, You can email me, like I said, or you can uh, get on the Facebook group or you can follow me on Instagram. And in a few days, I'll put out a post asking, you know, how are you honoring PWS Awareness Month? And 
and you can post it there so that everybody can read it. And we can all get ideas off each, off each other because I think that'll be great. Whew. Now, on to this week's topic, gratitude. How can having gratitude affect our brains and our lives? How can we practice the art of gratitude and bring it into our everyday to increase the quality of our lives? How can food gratitude affect us families living with PWS? So I had the wonderful pleasure of speaking with Emily Felt. I first met her over the ethers on this very podcast last year. Maybe some of you were here listening to it. She came on the podcast for PWS Awareness Month 2018, and she talked about her experience as a mother to a daughter with PWS. And we touched a little bit on, her, on the project that she was beginning to put out into the world. Well, since then, I have met Emily. Freya and Ollie have met. I have stayed with, I've met Emily's family. I've stayed with them. I've shared a meal a glass of wine or two, and I am now grateful to call her friend. Emily has since finished her project. She's presented it at various gatherings, and she spoke specifically about it with me. This conversation is about Emily's work called Food Gratitude, a Crash Course in Positive Psychology for Families of Children with PWS. So she has since modified this a bit. So if you are a family, if you're listening and you don't have someone in your life that has PWS, keep listening because there is so much just about the act of gratitude and how that affects us. But it also um, food gratitude specifically. It's something that is incredibly important for all of us. And as I say in our discussion, you know, we live in a culture and a society that has such like odd relationships to food everybody has some <laughs> some weird whether it's overeating under eating or this cleanse or that diet or you know we just we haven't uh we don't have a good relationship to food in our society I don't think so I think this is something that is definitely important for all of us so we talked about habits practices and rituals and we talked about the neurology of gratitude how it affects your brain we talked about the hows and whys of building resilience, how important it is to be resilient, and how reframing negative thoughts is a resiliency skill. So Emily also emphasizes the fact that there is no right way to do things, and the important thing is finding what works for your family. And this is not a you know, this is not a woo-woo conversation. I mean, I live in a part of the country where um, a lot of things are woo-woo. <laughs> a lot of conversations are woo-woo, and I love them. I love them, but I love that this conversation is very grounded. And I hope that you enjoy it. I hope that you enjoy this discussion on the very practical ways of bringing more gratitude into your life, especially as a parent of someone with PWS or other special needs. So to check out the resources, uh, you can check out the show notes for links, or you can find Emily's Food Gratitude Journal at foodgratitude.net. Uh, there is another one, emilyfelt.com backslash foodgratitude. So like I said, follow those in the show notes to check out this workbook. It's totally worth it.
Now, while I'm at it, I will do the obligatory reminder to follow, rate, and review the podcast, and of course, tell a friend. And as it turns out, (laughs) which I love this aspect, tell all your friends, not just the ones of raising kids who are raising kids with special needs. I have been getting personal feedback from mothers who listen that have typically developing children. And I just want to note that I always use air quotes when I say typically developing. You just can't see it in podcast land. And that is in no way disrespect to those kids or families, but it's more of a challenge to the social norm and a questioning of what exactly is typically developing. But I digress. I have friends who have spoken to parents of typically developing kids who listen to the podcast. I know a teacher or two. I know a therapist or two that listen. This podcast has expanded the intended audience, and I think that is fabulous. I'm so excited about that. So share it with all your friends. Share it with your kids' teachers and therapists and doctors. Expand the education. Expand the community. So thank you to everyone who is here, raising children with special needs or no, because it takes a village, and I, for one, am grateful for all of you. Thank you for having me back. It's really an honor, and I am a big fan of the podcast, so I'm happy to be invited back. Yeah, thanks. Well, I have had your food gratitude journal out on uh, my kitchen table for quite a while now. I got a a fancy folder and Freya has been just like, she just loves looking at that picture of Ollie. It's so sweet. <laughs> She's like, this is my friend. <laughs> so, so cute. Do you want to go ahead and just start with like kind of a general, give people a general idea of what it is that you have created? Sure. Um, so food gratitude started out as a sort of self-coaching program for families of children with Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, it was actually originally my final project for my, my certification in applied positive psychology. I became a positive psychology practitioner and coach through the Flourishing Center, which is a company in New York that does ongoing education uh, in positive psychology areas. So um, after six months of training, I, I knew I needed to give some sort of project back to the world. And I picked the Prader-Willi Syndrome community because that was the community that that I felt that um, that I could best serve just through my own experience. And I also felt, I really felt a real sense of gratitude towards my daughter, Olivia, and towards the whole experience that I had had having her. And um, I wanted to be able to share some of the tools that I had learned through my certification with other families. So the um, it's actually sort of a self-coaching program that comes with a workbook and journaling pages and it's based around the science of gratitude. Uh, gratitude is uh, an area that falls within positive psychology, which is like the study of how humans flourish and what makes people happy and how to develop sort of the skills and self-regulation techniques that contribute to our overall happiness and life satisfaction. So my overall message to families in this, um, this food gratitude program was basically to share with them the revelation that I had, which was that despite my circumstances, you know, I have two kids, um, a, a son who's 11 and my daughter who's seven, but despite our circumstances with a child with PWS, we, we still have everything that we need in order to have a, uh, live a very happy life, have a lot of life satisfaction. And, um, that for those 
challenging times in our lives, we can actually put certain tools to use to, to get there and do better. And gratitude is one of those things. So um, the, the actual workbook portion of it educates people about positive psychology and what is the study of gratitude. Um, it also asks people to sort of identify in their own lives the things that they feel grateful for. The point of which is to activate the part of the brain that uh, releases oxytocin and, and really feels a sense of safety and security when we start thinking about good things in our lives. And a really easy way to do that is just to start thinking about what we're grateful for. Uh, and then it kind of moves on towards addressing some of the limiting beliefs that we have as parents about our, our children with disabilities in general. And then um, I also apply some of these techniques to like ideas for people around the dinner table, things that they can do to sort of foster positive emotions around food. I mean, obviously, Annie, you know, those of us with kids with PWS, we've, food has become like this big issue in our lives. And I mean, it was kind of a big issue in my life already. I'm sort of a, a home chef foodie, sort of <laughs> food obsessed person. Um, but, you know, even if it's, if it's not big for us before having our kids, after we feel like our whole life has to revolve around, around food and it's often stressful. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, the whole end of the, the journal is really about, you know, how do we transform our ideas about food and mealtimes and all the restrictions into something a lot more positive and take those opportunities to have, you know, food practices and food rituals that really allow us to, to feel good and engage in these amazing experiences with our family members that later everyone feels good, you know, despite the fact that we also have a lot of food regulations and restrictions that we're going to keep, you know, continuing throughout our child's lifetime. So that was kind of how it started. Um, and I've presented it several different times to different groups. And then uh, some of the feedback I received from the, about the program from some of these groups was that it was, it's, it's very generalizable to a bigger population. Um, in one of my workshops, I had some parents of children with Moat-Wilson syndrome, and they even really, really liked the, the program and the journal. So I, um, I decided that I would sort of expand it to also apply to a little bit of a wider audience. Yeah, I, I love that part because you said that in the email and it's so true because I think especially um, in our culture, like we have such odd relationships to food. Yeah, we really do. And I, I think that was um, one of the thing that really, one of the things that I learned really strongly with my experience with my daughter. When she was born, we were living in Spain and there are actually a lot of really, um, I want to say sort of protective elements of the food culture there that in the United States, we don't necessarily have, you know, even just really simple things. Like it's a really uh, positive experience to eat sitting down around a dinner table with other people, right? As opposed to eating mm -hmm. like in the car or while walking down the street or just cramming your face with something while reading something on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, I confess. Um, I was, well, we all do it from time to time. It's, right. it's not like, uh, it's not the worst thing either, right? <laughs> but it's not a habit you want to get into. Yeah, I mean, I, right. I, I was scrambling to get my breakfast in before we started this. And then I was sitting here and I was just like, trying to get set up and like, you know, cramming my face with potato and eggs. And uh, I was like, oh God, this is, I'm not even doing it right. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I do that a bit every day in the sense that I, at one point in my life, not too long ago, actually, I was so overwhelmed and busy with my kids that I would often even just forget breakfast for myself completely. And it wasn't until I realized that just feeding myself is such a huge act of self-care mm. that I started um, making, you know, five to 10 minutes just to do any symbolic 
uh, eating, like eating a piece of fruit every morning or making a smoothie. So I can't say that that's the most, um, you know, someone who there's probably people that are much better about <laughs> eating in terms of self-care than me, but that's kind of the max that I could fit into my routine at the time. Yeah. Well, it looks different ways too. I actually just um, am almost towards the end of a whole 30, which I'm not going to get into, but it's a special kind of like diet cleanse, but it's not a cleanse. Mm -hmm. Like you're eating um, good meat and vegetables and fats and I'm doing it for allergy reasons, but. Sounds like a good diet. (laughs) I mean, it really is. And it's, and it's harder at times and it's tedious, but the food is amazing. And Mm -hmm. everything comes from just like, you see your food before you eat it, you know, everything that you're eating because it looks like how it came off the plant, you know, (laughs) like you're not, there's no (laughs) processed foods involved. And so I was just thinking about that kind of in connection to this, how, um, you know, how easy it is when I'm not doing that to like, oh, I'm hungry and go get a croissant or whatever, you know, drive through Mocha and, and like it, this, um, doing the whole 30, it really does kind of force this ritual around food because everything has to be prepared by your hands pretty much. You can't really go out to eat because of the restrictions, but, um, you know, it just really kind of brings it into focus, I think. Wow, I'm going to check that out. I had I haven't heard of that before, but it sounds very interesting. Although I do think it would conflict fairly significantly with some of my own food rituals, like eating out or um, indulging in uh-huh. you know, pastry. I'm a huge pastry <laughs> fan, so croissant for me is more like an act of self love than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this is not meant to be done for the rest of your life, it's meant to kind of shift your focus around food and, and eventually you can get back to things like that. But, you know, I'm someone that definitely has an addiction to sugar and will, you know, can consume it without thinking about it. And so this kind of, at least for a little while, trains me to, to think about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Which I think brings us to a point that's so important, which is as much as the actual food we eat is important, how we eat, it's also important, right. In terms of Mm -hmm. like, are we eating it mindfully or, and are we eating in an intentional way that's that we're really enjoying it and doing it the way we want, or are we just doing it um, reactively without even thinking about it? Yeah, and you talk about that in the in the workbook, um, the habits, the practices, and the rituals. And it seems like there there's kind of a differentiation between the three of those. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the habits, habits, practice, and rituals, the idea is that they all contribute to our overall well-being. And habits are extremely important. And that's an area that I think a lot of us have, have lost, um, at least in this, the United States, is that, you know, when our brain is constantly taking all this information in and making decisions about what to do, and we're increasingly having more and more information come across our radar screen. And so our brain gets tired out by making decisions. So the idea with habit is that all of the very basic actions that we want to take that are good for our health, we want to make into habits. That way we don't have to think about it anymore, right? Like we'll just operate kind of on autopilot. And like brushing our teeth is one great example because we don't want to every day have to decide, okay, now I'm going to go brush my teeth. We just want to be able to do it without even thinking about it. So that's kind of where habits come in. And there's a great book, um, I think, called Habit by Charles Duhigg that that really goes into how habits work in the brain and how if we want to bring about long-term change, we can start by working on our habits. And it's a really is an effective way to actually have some of the changes in our life that we want. 
So once we have our sort of our habits down, practices are, um, takes it a little bit step further. It's like things that we have to do a little bit more intentionally in terms of our health. So, you know, the way I frame it in the workbook um, for families that want to create some of these positive experiences around mealtimes, it just means um, getting into the practice of, you know, talking about the ingredients or, um, you know, noticing the freshness of what we're cooking with, or even just cooking itself could be like a practice. We don't have to do it every single day, but we can try and incorporate that practice over time sort of into our family lifestyle. And then for rituals, ritual is really the aspect of, um, it's the aspect of the practice where it really becomes savory, positive, and we really integrate the positiveness of the experience into our life. So a ritual would be something like, you know, in my family, uh, we're not religious, but when we do sit down at the dinner table and we have all of our dinner there, we take a minute to go around the table and we'll either say something that we're really grateful for that happened that day, or we'll talk about something that uh, another person at the table did that made us feel good or that was positive. So this is a ritual that we've put into our routine because we know that it makes us feel good about sitting down around the table together. And then we always have those kind of those memories of, you know, I can even remember back to when I was a kid, rituals that my parents had around the dinner table that, you know, made us enjoy the experience. And we remember being together and we remember being connected. And I think one of the elements of my, my workbook is that I think all families can benefit from this because I mean, granted, many of us aren't even sitting around the table anymore for eating or being together when we're eating, but no matter what a family life looks like, we can find rituals, which are like things that make us feel good that we can do together, that we can just uh, institute on a repeated basis, you know, make it into a ritual. And then we have like that sense of enjoyment, that sense of connection. Um, and all of that has, you know, really uh, externalizes in a positive way to other areas of the family life. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that starting your meal with uh, saying what you're grateful for. And I love that I have uh, gotten to sit with your family at dinner at your table. <laughs> yeah. We loved having you over for dinner. Actually, you came. Um, it was a pretty standard, typical dinner for us. And we normally do sit down together. But um, I know that, that not all families do. And so I, I think the point is when we know some of the importance of these things, we give ourselves permission to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't know that these things actually have an impact on the way that we feel, on our physical system, and then on our sort of health and well-being outcomes, it's going to be really easy for us to say, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired. I was so stressed out at work today. Like, let's just mindlessly eat in front of the TV or we don't really give these things the importance that they deserve. Mm-hmm. But when we know the impact it has, then, then we're more likely to say, yeah, I, you know, I want to cultivate these important family times and these family experiences. And this is like a really easy way to do it because most of us have a history. Maybe if we're not doing it, maybe with our parents, we, we did sit down together and eat. Or maybe with our grandparents, you know, they had the tradition of cooking a meal and bringing people together around the table and eating it together. So these practices actually have roots like, you know, way back in our, in our family history. And then depending on what country we're from, you know, some countries really have them rooted very, very strongly in their, their cultural traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was younger, um, we definitely all sat around the dinner table at night. And so um, probably till I got to high school. Uh, but in my family, we, we definitely, we do, we sit around the table because I make dinner every night um, or my husband does. And, uh, 
yeah i mean we don't have any sweet rituals of saying what we're grateful for sometimes we're irritated with each other or the kids are fighting <laughs> but like damn it we're still sitting at the table and there's no phones <laughs> so we try um, yeah those those things are important to have and you know, like, I think it gets back to this idea that we don't also have to be perfectionistic about it. We don't have to have it all the time. It doesn't mean we can't be flexible and switch up our schedule. But it's just that practice of over and over coming back to what makes us happy together as a family. Right. And what, what times and places and events are sacred in terms of, you know, for my family, we have a really sacred feeling around our summer vacation and people say you're going to spend that amount of money on going to Europe you know and but the answer is like yeah because we save all year for that and that's what we really love doing is traveling so you know we forego cable tv and we live a certain sort of a lifestyle where we we can save money that way we can we can engage and enjoy our ritual of, of traveling the summer together <laughs> mm -hmm. I love it yeah well, I was thinking about, um, it's interesting to note that like when, because sometimes during certain times of the year, we will have dinner that is um, just vegetables from the garden and like fish that my husband caught in the ocean. Oh, let us know. We're going to, we want to come to your house on that night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. But it's, it's just, um, it's always amazing to note like how we, uh, those meals always do begin with such gratitude. Like we're always like, thank you. Thank you, Mama Ocean, for the fish. Thank you, Daddy, for catching it. Thank you, Mama, for growing the vegetables. Like we're, you know, it's because we have a connection to the food. We are um, a lot more um, attentive to the gratitude. Whereas, you know, yeah. if it's something like when we go out to a Mexican restaurant, you know, like we don't really think about the food or where it came from, or because um, we might not want to know actually, but. <laughs> <laughs> You might want to know. Yeah, you might not want to know. But at the same time, I think sometimes we can make these things intentional. You know, like I sometimes find families where people are like, well, I can't do this because I never have time to cook or I can't do this because I can only afford to buy this type of food. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like whatever our circumstances are, actually just the impact of intentionally finding the aspect of it that we're grateful for has the same impact on our brain, you know, as someone who does have the vegetable garden outside, whose husband does go fishing <laughs> and catch fish, which I think probably applies to like, maybe not even 0.1% of the population. <laughs> um, you know, like the impact is the same. It's not the food itself. It's the, the, the feeling of gratitude for it that has the effect, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the reasons behind, behind when I put this workbook and this program together, my kind of desire was to help people see that these practices can really change our lives and actually our circumstances don't even matter. You know, it doesn't matter that we've got these different limitations because of our children. And it doesn't matter that, you know, one family lives in the States and another one lives somewhere else. It doesn't matter um, our resource levels or our income, right? Like these are things that we can actually do no matter what our circumstances. And I think for me, that's just the most powerful part of it. Um, of course, you know, it's great if, if on top of that, we do have the ability to buy fresh ingredients or the time to cook a home cooked meal, at least, you know, once a week or, or even just a few days a week. Um, I mean, that's huge, right? In our day and age, time is kind of the new currency. It's like more important than money even. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Um, so I wanted to go back. I have a whole list of questions. I don't think I've gotten. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I love it. So it, you mentioned a disease-focused approach versus resilience-focused approach. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, like what the difference is. And Sure. So I was, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, so it's kind of great that you asked that question because I was trying to figure out myself, um, you know, where does this model that I'm talking about really fit in? And I think for, for families of kids with special needs, you know, we... We're, we all have in common that we're very much managed by the medical system. And the medical system does take a disease-focused approach because that's what it's there for, right? Like it's, it's the system that's given us the diagnosis. It's the system that provides all the specialists that we need. And it's very helpful. Um, and the whole point of it is that they treat these conditions like illnesses, like something's wrong. Uh, now, from the positive psychology perspective, which I delved into deeply during my certification, we start from an approach where um, a person's already whole, they're already a whole human being, and the way that we build resilience is not by focusing on the parts of us that are broken or the parts of us that are the weakest, but we focus on the parts of us that are the strongest, the strengths that we already have, um, the good parts of us, because it's easier to build those than it is to fix the things that we may feel are wrong. So I think that um, my message is kind of that for, for those of us parents, you know, that are in this group of, we have special needs kids, we, we can't um, leave all of our family happiness in the hands of the medical system. We can't only be waiting for new treatments or a cure to start fostering our own well-being because the, the disease-focused approach isn't going to bring us that. That's actually not what builds resilience is just having access to a new treatment. What really builds resilience are some of these skills like the ability to bounce back more quickly from adversity, you know, or the ability to find our own strengths and put them to use in our daily lives. And those are things that the medical approach can't really give us. So... Um, that's the resilience approach, which we can build ourselves through some of these practices like gratitude, like savoring our family time together, um, like talking about each other's strengths and knowing what they are and then putting them to use in different situations. So when you talk about gratitude, I'm not really sure which question I want to ask first because, um, we define gratitude, but then I love that you have in this, um, well, like the ways that... It, um, having gratitude can affect your brain and your health and uh, and on you know on that level I think maybe people don't realize how I mean you said in, when you were first talking about it that it releases oxytocin right yeah our so there part of positive psychology there's like a, a large part of it that's related to neurology and just studying what happens in the brain in the presence of different emotions um, so gratitude I like because I feel like everyone kind of knows what it is, right? It's sort yeah. of something that we've all been exposed to in one way, shape or form, and we can all find things in our lives to be grateful for. Um, what happens is that if we are focused on something that our brain finds threatening, our brain ha basically has two responses, you know, it feel, it can either feel threatened by something and then it wants to escape from it which it produces this flight or fight, fight or flight response, or it can feel not threatened and secure and a sense of safety 
um, which is what happens in the presence of positive emotions. So I guess my point is that there's a lot of situations where we can feel threatened. I mean, even just something like um, being in a situation with our child where we're thinking about the risks of the disease that they have or the condition that they have, you know, our brain can perceive those, just knowing about those risks as a threat. And then um, it, it activates the sort of like the more primitive part of our brain that evolved millions of years ago when, you know, our ancestors were just trying to stay alive and survive. They were just trying to escape from danger. So that's what that part of the brain serves us. That's what it's for to serve us, right? But when we, ha when we have positive emotions, we're using an entirely different part of our brain, more the human part, the prefrontal cortex, and that's also the part of the brain that's responsible for like planning, decision-making, and more rational thought. And those are the types of skills that we want to use in any situation with our kids anyway, when we're trying to decide whether to take one course of action or another in terms of their treatment, or whether we're just trying to decide what we want to do with them and how we want to you know, structure their care. So the idea is that by, by intentionally feeling these positive emotions that come up with gratitude, like, you know, joy or, you know, a sense of thankfulness, a sense of um, we're benefiting from something that's bigger than us ourselves or that someone else has provided for us, we, uh, we actually influence our system. And um, we have, you know, ox it increases our oxytocin in the system and we feel a sense of safety and security. And that's like the opposite of what happens when our brain feels threatened and then it has a stress response. So it's sort of like intentionally uh, lessening our stress response and feeling good on purpose to then take advantage of many of the benefits of that. Mm -hmm. And some of the benefits you mentioned are like improved sleep and it decreases stress and it just kind of improves your overall health. And Yeah. And this is what I love about this is that there are studies that have shown these sort of correlations and relationships. So we are likely to have an improvement in sleep. The quality of our relationships improves. We have greater overall well-being and life satisfaction. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's really a lot of, of studies that show the relationship between, between these things, the feelings of gratitude. And it's, it's not like a trait that someone just needs to have in an innate sort of way. Because when they study this, they take sort of random groups of people and they, they divide them into two groups and they'll tell one group to do gratitude journaling for three weeks and they'll have the other group do something else such as recalling each day all of the problems that they faced and then they'll compare the outcomes over time after between these two groups and they'll see that the impact of going through those emotions and feeling the effects of the gratitude has a positive effect on people over time. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think everybody can look into their own uh, like social sphere and see people that, you know, there are people that don't have very much on some level, but they're just happy and positive and they're moving along. And then there's other people that just seem like they always have something to complain about. And, you know, even though you're looking at them like, what, why are you, you know, so um, I, I love this idea that, uh that you can kind of train yourself to have more gratitude and do these, some of these practices that you have in this, in this workbook. Um, yeah. I think for me, that's probably the most powerful part of it is that um, we can not only know that these things work, but we can also know that they're not just, we're either born with it or we're not like we can build these skills. We can do these things on purpose and then we can experience a lot of the positive outcomes thanks to putting these things into practice. Because it's so true, like you said, 
we all do know people that um, that have everything but spend most of their time deeply upset or are constantly negative. And then on the other hand, we know people that just have this amazingly positive attitude and feel really good about life and need very little to be happy. And um, it goes to show that our circumstances only have a limited role in our overall quality of life, mm-hmm. which I think for parents of kids with special needs is very important because when I, you know, when my child with special needs was born, one of my greatest fears was that our quality of life would go down mm-hmm. and that to be quite honest, it just wouldn't be that great of a life anymore. <laughs> and it sounds horrible to say it, but it was really this deep fear that life's going to be really hard and it's really not fair and it's just going to be hard and difficult. And um, to, to know that that's not true, that a lot of our own happiness is in our own hands and that, you know, the types of families that we're in, we can still have our dreams, our hopes, our goals, and our enjoyment is is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a very common reaction in the beginning. I definitely, when I first started reading about Prader-Willi syndrome after Freya's diagnosis and the the emphasis on the schedule and like they can't veer from the schedule and we are not a schedule oriented family like that <laughs> feels so oppressive to me and so that was like one of the because we also love to travel I mean we haven't been able to travel as much but um you know so yeah like in the beginning that was the depressing stuff like you said the quality of life like how are we <laughs> are we going to be able to live a life again and and we have since, um, you know, we've taken our kids to Mexico, we've gone to Guatemala, we've gone to visit family, you know, like we've, we've still traveled, like we live still, I mean, except during the school weeks, we, you know, we live an unstructured life. And I mean, it, th- there's ways, there's ways to figure it out and being positive and having gratitude and, and just being open to the possibilities rather than getting, letting everything be defined by the disorder and the statistics. Yeah. And I, I think for families like ours too, it's so helpful to know that um, everybody's situation looks different and that's okay. You know, the key is to, to really delve into like what is important to us as a family and what do we want to prioritize and what is, what are the things that we need to have routine for what works for us? And it's not going to necessarily match what works for anyone else, but it's going to work for us. You know, it's going to work for each individual family that they're going to be able to find the way. Absolutely. In our family, we're also, we are quite a schedule oriented family because we did used to live in Spain and let's face it, people there do eat on a schedule. It's part of their culture. It's not just special needs families. It's like everybody, (laughs) Um, you know, you can't eat dinner at six or 7 PM because dinner doesn't start till eight. Right. Yeah. But, um, so we, we're a little more oriented towards schedule. But I've also found that our families, we need to be flexible. We need to teach our kids how to be flexible. So if we do maintain some stability for a great portion of our days, then we can use other times to break out of our schedule and also help our kids learn that, you know, sometimes they also need to be more flexible, even though it's a greater challenge for them. But um, I think the worst thing is that when we fall into the mindset of thinking that there's one right way and we have to do it that way, no matter whether it makes us happy or unhappy, and that we, we shouldn't break out of that or that we feel guilty when we do because we know that life isn't like that. Life yeah. is constantly changing and presenting us with different scenarios. And you know we want to be able to live life fully with our kids. 
Yeah. And, and they're just like any other person. I mean, they have this, this syndrome that defines maybe certain aspects of, of them or gives them, uh, you know, certain challenges, but they're still human and so varied on, on many other levels. So yeah, just, yeah, they are human. And I think, um, like one thing that was really helpful for me was to, to stop hating Prader-Willi syndrome, you know, because uh, it works well in the medical approach to sort of separate, okay, this is my child and they have this condition and it's not their fault. And I don't like the condition, but I love my child. And mm-hmm. from the perspective of we all are whole, we just love the whole person, Prader Willie and all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my daughter's born with this certain set of genetic information that's a little bit different and it's called Prader Willie. And this is just who she is. And I just love her as a whole person. And then, you know, get frustrated sometimes, but focus on her strengths and, and um, try to be more intentionally positive about it. And I found that to work really well for me and just be huge in terms of the way that I'm able to, to sort of handle some of the tough stuff that comes up in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I had uh, one of the things that's, that was kind of getting me down lately was just this like, oh man, this is forever. This is for the rest of my life. She's going to need me to to help Mm -hmm. figure things out for her and and to care for her on a level that, um, you know, it can seem, um, you know, kind of daunting at times. And then just this last weekend, we were on a family hike um, from our place and my two uh, daughters, two of my daughters decided to go back. But Freya kept walking with me and Andy and we were, I mean, we went on this grand adventure, like climbing rocks by the river and, and bushwhacking. And it was so, it was just a beautiful hike. And at one point my, we were looking at Freya, she's trying to climb over these rocks. And my husband said, you know, in 10 years, it's just going to be the three of us. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those moments where it was, where that, that realization that she's always going to be with us was a beautiful Oh. Yeah, because you're book you're bushwhacking. <laughs> <laughs> like we're on an adventure, we're having fun. Like it was a beautiful. We were in a beautiful forest, and you know, she's yeah. just such a sweet companion to have along. And so, you know, and I think it's okay to remember that there are going to be both, or a variety of. You know, there's some days where it's like, oh my god, and then other days it's like, yay. So yeah, yeah, so, I find that too. That's probably the aspect that I struggle most it's probably the part that I struggle the most with is letting go of the idea that my child needs to move away from me or that I shouldn't take care of my child for my whole life. Um, I think it's part of being in the society that we're into, which mm. really prioritizes being independent and having, you know, goals for achievement and accomplishing those. Um, sometimes it helps me to remember that there are lots of instances in society where it's really okay to to be taken care of, you know, like for example, when a person's older, we we don't assume that someone should be able to take care of themselves up until the last minute, you know, when they reach age ninety. Right. Um, and in our cases, it's just you know we live in a society that says you know people need to leave their parents, people need to be independent, and that's a very valuable thing. And um, so you know we have to we're faced with this situation of saying, yeah, sometimes it's going to feel hard that maybe my daughter will live with me forever. Um, And other times it can be great because our kids are people that probably need like that ongoing support. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of their lot and that's okay too. You know, there is, 
there's something really uh, that I think is important in being of service in life too. There are people in the world that need care and part of ourselves is to take care. So we can offer that to them. But it, like you said, it, it doesn't mean that we're always going to feel great about it every day. I mean, I think my husband and I too, that's probably the part that we're most like, wow, you know, we see my son going off and going to college or whatever, but when we think about our daughter, we think about the three of us, <laughs> you know, like sitting around the table or just traveling together or doing whatever. And, you know, we mansion ourselves at age, you know, in our sixties or seventies and still with our daughter there. <laughs> so it's kind of hard sometimes. <laughs> I remember my husband one time said, uh, you know, I can't wait to retire with you on a, and live on a boat off the coast of Scotland, just me and you and Freya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think that that is a a beautiful clarification that, you know, it's our society that says people need to be independent and grow away and, and go away. You know, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a biological thing. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. That, that's a whole other discussion. But um, <laughs> yeah. You know. So I feel, I feel like we've veered off from the from the um, workbook a little bit. One of the things. Okay. Okay. I think it's whatever, sometimes whatever comes up in these conversations is, is good because it's just what people think about and what people, I know that a lot of, I think a lot of families struggle with the same issue of just knowing that we have such a solid role as caretakers and that it's something that we didn't plan on mm -hmm. and now right. you know, we can feel like we're going to be doing it for, for quite some time. Yeah. What I want to say re with regards to this is that uh, none of these practices get us to a point where we're never going to be overwhelmed again, or we're never going to have a tough time with something. Mm -hmm. You know, each stage of life has like its own challenges. But I think that by practicing things like gratitude, it gives us skills that we can use to kind of make those overwhelming times a little bit better or make them help us know that we're going to return to a good place, that we're going to get through it, that, uh, you know, if we can remember all the things in our life that we love, even when something's hard going on, we still have that in the back in the background. And that's mm -hmm. a strength. Yeah. So well, it's not just like, oh, mask it all over, think positive, pretend like you don't have any problems. Like that's not really it. It's just really about being true to our experience. We we are gonna have challenges. Um, and these are skills that we can use to to make life still really, really good, even despite all of that. Yeah. Well, and that and that brings it to, like you say in the workbook, the reframing is a as a resiliency skill. Um, so can you give like an example of that or talk about that for a minute? Do you know what I'm thinking? sure? Yeah. So yeah, you're talking about the area where I address some of the different beliefs that we have. Yeah. And the way this works is it's, it really comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. It's really simple. And probably most of us have done it in other aspects of our life. Um, and it just means paying attention to our own mind chatter. And we'll notice that when we get into we're having a tough time or we're in a negative situation, we're not feeling good, our mind chatter will often be negative. You know, like we may get into a situation at work, for example, and we'll say, oh, I can't believe I made that mistake. I'm such an idiot. Um, or that's so unfair. I can't believe she said that to me. You know, she's a horrible person. And the idea is that when, when this happens, we get kind of stuck in a mental loop and we can't really get out of it very easily. It doesn't give us any solutions or anything like that. Um, if we take a step back and get curious about the situation and reframe some of those, those thoughts, that mind chatter in a more positive way, 
then actually helps get us to a solution. So we might be able to look at our situation at work and say, you know, I felt really bad when, you know, my boss said this to me, but um, maybe my boss is having a bad day. You know, I actually tried my hardest on that and that's about the best that I can do. So maybe next time I'm going to remember that my boss tends to get stressed out about this and this is how I'm going to address it. So if we look at it that way, we, we get to solutions. So some of the beliefs that I have in my workbook are, I think I put in there things that I thought about when I got my daughter's diagnosis that kind of led me into that pit of that I couldn't go anywhere with them. And then I was giving ideas to reframe them. So, you know, we might even take this idea that we just talked about, you know, life is harder for people with disabilities. Uh, I always thought that. I thought people with disabilities have a tough life. And actually, that really gets us nowhere, right? But if we can step back and remember and reframe it, we can say, yeah, you know what? My daughter has a lot of challenges, but she also has a lot of strengths. And um, she's going to be able to learn to use those strengths in her life, and she's going to be able to find joy. I mean, that's just an example of how, how to take one of these sort of really negative beliefs or thoughts and, and take a step back, get curious about, well, what else could this look like? What else could be true? Well, one of the things that I've thought about with that, with the whole, um, you know, they're going to be with us for the rest of the rest of their lives, um, for the rest of our lives was, um, I thought one time, well, you know, I know all these people, I have, I have older friends whose kids have left, left the house. And so they have kind of that empty nest syndrome. And I was yeah. like, well, I'll never have that. I'll never have to, <laughs> to go through that transition of what do I do now? <laughs> Yeah, the silver lining. Your you, you, your kid's going to be with you. You don't have to let go of them. I felt like that too sometimes. I kind of felt like that secret mom desire that all women have. Like, I never want my kids to leave. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is funny. And I I think the, the value of this practice it's, is to recognize, you know, that we, we there are parts of this that would make us feel sad. There are parts of us that that hurt, you know. Um, but at the same time, that's not all the end of the story. There are parts of us that, that feel good. There are parts of us that can get curious about it. And there are parts of us that, that just can really enjoy life anyway and, and, and make it the way that we want. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, Emily, I know that you um, are in a time frame. I just, do you want to end and let people know how... Like, how can people, how do you want to see this out in the world and how can people um, get get it? Um, I have a train going on in the background, so I wasn't sure if you were picking that up. There's like a train driving by, horrible timing. Um, let's see, how do I want to see this out in the world? So if anyone's interested in downloading the workbook or looking more at the program, they can find it online. Um, it's just at the website. It's www.emilyfelt.com slash foodgratitude. Um, the other website where you can find it is just foodgratitude.net. So that's where to find the workbook. And um, yeah, I'm actually looking right now for, for people who want to share some of their experiences with some of the concepts in it. So please definitely have people get in touch with me if, if they want to take a look and then, and then let me know how some of the techniques work for them or just what their experience is about it, how they're how they're doing it. Um, I've presented this four or five times to different audiences, uh, some families with kids with PWS and some families with children with other disabilities. And I've gotten a lot of different feedback and I've tried to incorporate it along the way to make 
the whole program a little bit better and a little bit more applicable to what people really need. So I'm super excited to get feedback and just see how, how it lands with people. I think this is a fantastic resource for anyone, but especially us families with kids with PWS. And so I definitely encourage people to check it out and, and see what they can bring into their life. Yeah. And also, um, I also think like even this podcast is a great resource. I'm starting to see so many examples of like positive resources for parents and for families that I'm just, I'm so happy about that because I, I feel like we somehow don't have enough of it and it's still kind of lacking. Um, you know, but if other people have really positive information or positive resources to share, let's all share it with each other. That way we all are more surrounded by some of this information that makes us feel good and gives us actual positive strategies for, for functioning well as a family. Absolutely. Absolutely.